with so many podcasts out there, shows can get lost in the shuffle. That's why we implore you to check out Too Many Captains. You can find us at a moviepodcast.com. Five unique takes on Hollywood movies and culture. Find us on Twitter at It's a Film Podcast. Check our intellectual deep dives into theatrical films. Find us on Instagram at Too Many Captains Productions. Unique takes on soundtracks. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash too many captains productions. Find us at a moviepodcast.com on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And now, here comes a new episode of Collateral Cinema. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Robert Ortegon. I'm Smashley Ashley. This is Collateral Cinema. Welcome to Collateral Cinema, the only movie podcast that matters, where we focus on good movies, bad movies, and everything else in between in the world of cinema. We are podcasting straight from somewhere in South Texas, and yes, my friends, we are a 420-friendly podcast. So whatever you have, be it blunts, bongs, dabs, joints, smoke it if you've got it, my friends. Smoke it if you've got it. And today, this fine evening, I'm, I'm joined by gentlemen Bo and Robert and chilling in the the studio the old yeah the studio where it all began where it all started yeah this is pretty much where where it all kind of came together right and it's world end speak up three minds jesus three minds came together to and it's where all end (laughs) (laughs) what the fuck we just you know three three bachelors yeah yeah bachelors right to talk about what we love movies cinema exactly perspective Movies, indies, you name it. Oh yeah, whatever. And uh, we're doing our first, our second anime, right? Yeah, this is part two of our anime film special. We're talking and, about Akira. And I can't believe I made it for this. Yeah, right. We we actually weren't expecting Robert to be here, actually, but thank goodness he actually showed up. Hey, didn't Dakota pick this movie? I mean, I'm pretty sure Dakota did pick this movie. Yeah, so. It's funny that I showed up and not him, right? Right. <laughs> but anyway, I guess let's go ahead and dive deep into this phenomenal movie, you know, which I would say is one of the most, if not the most influential anime film, you know, really, especially as, you know, the genre is perceived in the West, right? Oh, it is pretty much a landmark movie as far as animation is concerned and as Japanese anime is concerned. And if you go back to our Perfect Blue episode, you will hear how we dove into how the Japanese economic boom really influenced the rise of anime and otaku culture. And a lot of that applies to this movie as well. This movie is kind of a little bit of a contemporary to Perfect Blue, maybe by off by a few years. 
Yeah, kind of, um, I think, more at the forefront of that, because this came out before Perfect Blue, right? 1988? Yeah, you're right. It came out like a couple of years before, I believe. So this was kind of the start of that trend, especially, like I said, with the Western world in anime. And it kind of occupies this unique time period, which was the late 80s for anime. You know, there's kind of this animation style and this whole direction that anime takes that ever since it's become more mainstream and has had to tailor itself to an audience, it really hasn't, you know, gotten that aspect back in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was, in a weird way, even as explicit as most of the material was, there was kind of an innocence to it. I mean, yeah. and I know that's weird. I mean, because also this was the time when like Rutsuka Doji came out, you know, and also like Vampire Hunter D and Violence Jack. But even with all that really fucked up gory shit, there was something really just fun and almost childlike about it in a weird way. Right. And it's almost like it's just not afraid to go anywhere or do anything. So like you said, it has kind of this childlike innocence and in its ability to explore. I mean, what what did you think about, you know, just that all being laid bare, Robert? A lot of that fight scene was, I don't know, it reminded me of Batman Beyond, the beginning of it. Yeah, there's a lot of... The motorcycle scene, you know, in the beginning of the yeah, first yeah. Batman Beyond movie? Yeah, there, there's a lot of material that Akira directly influenced, like, especially in the decades afterwards. Damn. Yeah, not just anime, but, you know, like you said, just animation in general. Yeah, and also gaming as well. It had an influence on gaming. I don't know. Oh, I'm, for just, sure. I'm just finding out from the whole Japanese culture myself, though. Yeah, this is kind of your first real like exposure to this type of medium, right? Yeah. But see, you know, y'all say y'all both kind of grew up with Dragon Ball Z, right? Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have Dragon Ball if it weren't for Akira. You know what I mean? Oh, definitely. We yeah. We wouldn't have the Batman animated series. We wouldn't have any of that. I mean, I think Speed Racer was the first one, right? I see a lot of those races. Not, it's not the first anime ever. It's I mean, not that, the first that goes all the way back. It influenced it, right? Didn't it? Yeah, that that goes a little further back, a like to those, like Tezuka and everything. Yeah, a lot of those cartoon race scenes from like the '60s, like. Yeah, I mean, you, you never seen old school Astro Boy, have you? I've seen Astro Boy. Astro, Astro Boy is yeah. fucking great. <laughs> I haven't seen Astro Boy. Did they make that movie? We didn't do so well, right? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, they did actually. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about Akira is that it, it also started out as a manga, which is something that's also become popularized in the West, um, you know, along with anime. But the film is a, is a direct adaptation of the manga, although it's it's a much more condensed version of the story from what I've heard. But yeah. the director of the film, uh, Katsuhiro Ultimo, is the mangaka or the um, the artist of the manga. Yeah, and the funny thing about this, and this is how condensed this movie is, the actual ending of this movie actually occurs like halfway through like the second fucking book in the series. Yeah, like, and what from what I've heard is that you know while the the manga definitely inspired the movie, the film ends up you know kind of being fully actualized in the ending of the manga. You know, so there's kind of that dual causality. <laughs> yeah, I, and and it really just adds a lot more to the story. I mean, it fills in a lot of the things that. We only kind of really get in small pieces in this movie, especially when it comes to the metaphors used. But Oh, yeah. There's some of the themes in this, there's just layered on top of each other, and it's kind of like a blink and you'll miss it. So I'd really love to read the manga to see, you know, kind of where these themes are explored in more detail and form, you know, full story arcs. But I, I guess anyway, you know, talking about Katsuhiro Otomo, like, you know, like we said, he's the creator of the manga, which was written before, during, and after the movie. 
Uh, he also, you know, co-writes the screenplay with Izo Hashimoto behind uh, works like Sekuban Deka and EM Embalming. Oh, wow. I don't think I've really seen any of those. I haven't either, but, you know, I, I do a little bit of research on Akira and its production. What's interesting is that Ultimo originally did not intend to adapt the manga, but eventually, you know, he, he was intrigued by the idea, and he only agreed to it on the grounds that he maintained full creative control. And it really shows. I mean, j just even in the animation style, I mean, just the way that it kind of captures the actual movement of the manga itself that's shown in the pages and in, in, the, in the drawing and everything. Oh, the animation is crazy, right, Robert? Oh, when he goes all Toxic Avenger, dude? That's sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the end of the movie. <laughs> that was badass. I, I like it, dude. But, I mean, just think about how much time it took for them to put all that detail into that animation. I mean, there's so much detail. There's so many things going on at once in a scene. Okay. And even just, just the, you know, just the small, minute details like how Tetsuo drawing in the debris and forming, like, you know, muscles and tendons of a prosthetic arm, you know? Like, yeah. Or, or even just looking at the way the characters actually just move. It's very natural. Mm -hmm. It almost looks like it could be mo-capped in a way. Like, and, and there, there was no mo-capping at that time. No, no motion capture. So, I mean, it kind of really mimics real movement. Yeah, no, definitely. There's, there's a lot of work done into the animation. I mean, from what I've heard, the up to over... 20 drawings a second oh shit just to get that smoothness um in fact you know this was such a ambitious venture that you know there was a, a committee formed major japanese entertainment companies like kodansha mayanichi broadcasting company bandai hakuhodo toho laserdisc sumitomo pretty much all the giants in the uh the Japanese entertainment industry, pretty much. Exactly. They formed the Akira Committee, which was formed specifically for this film. Um, and and it, isn't that something that a lot of anime kind of undergoes? They have, like, that kind of committee production behind them? Because I remember, like, Ghost in the Shell and Death Note having uh, similar committees behind them. I, I think that was kind of as a result of this, you know? Ghost in the Shell came out after this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really, there was that kind of that influence and kind of that feeling of, okay, we can do this. There's an audience for this. There's um, money to be made here. I mean, the film has over a 700 million yen budget, um, which at the time was the most expensive uh, anime film. Yeah, and it shows just in every single motion in the animation. I mean, you mm -hmm. can tell that actual quality and care and money was put into this. Yeah, no, definitely. And just, yeah, just the overall, like, work and how much thought was put into the script. Um, I know Ultimo had to conclude the story of the manga, you know, following this or, you know, during this. You know, he had this manga story planned and he kind of had to bring it to a close and find a way to bring closure to all the characters, the storylines and themes while still making them meaningful but succinct. And, and you know, originally... He had drafted originally 2,000 pages of designs. I had to cut them down to a little over 700. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of story. I mean, what, what did you think, Robert? I mean, if you're anything like me the first time I watched this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I believe that I need to watch it again just to get the... You need to watch it several times yeah. if you really, really want to get the gist of the... It's... Of, of what's really going on here. It's like a racer. Story-wise. You, yeah. you need to watch it more than once. Really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very abstract. To even get what's going on, like the other one we saw, Perfect Blue, I still don't know what the fuck I saw. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of, another one of those movies that I think 
necessitates a few rewatches. I mean, this is only my second time actually watching the film. I had seen it years before, um, and it did stick out in my mind, but just exactly what the fuck everything is about, I'm still kind of coming to terms with. Yeah, I'll never forget when I actually first encountered this movie, and it was actually... Uh, back in the 90s, very, very early Saturday mornings, they would have an anime block on the Sci-Fi channel back in the day. And they would show these movies pretty much uncut, except for maybe some nudity cut out. But all of the violence and the cussing, it was pretty much all intact. And oh, yeah. this was the first time I ever saw Akira was on that block, fucking like around 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> like, I, I'm probably, like, maybe 13, 14 years old. I, I, mean, I don't know what the fuck I was doing up at that time on a Saturday, but, yeah, I mean, I, I watched all kinds of classics, like Project Echo and, uh, and Vampire Hunter D, and I, I think even uh, Evangelion, probably. This movie, I think, is compared a lot to Evangelion. Uh... Yeah, it, it, it kind of has a certain critical take on its uh, subject matter, except... Like, with Evangelion, it's more of a criticism of religion and institutions and everything. Right. Whereas this you know? is more criticism of, I, I think, the, I guess the dangers of technology and also uh, the greediness of yeah, corporations. It, and- yeah, yeah it, it, it's another anime that came out around this time that was, had very cautionary vibes about technology that was coming up. I mean, I don't see much of a presence of, say, like, the internet in this, but, I mean... You could tell that there was some major scientific advancements in this world, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're able to even contain Akira like they did. No, yeah. And just the multiple complex themes that are layered on one another in this. You know what I mean? It's just there's so much to intake. Yeah, it's a lot to take in at one time. I mean, I, I've heard it said in certain anime circles that it takes no less than six or seven views to finally get this movie to sink in, you know? And this is probably the ninth or tenth time that I've seen this movie. Okay. So, I mean, some of the themes here, they're pretty plain as day, like creation, destruction, the corruption of power, and and also, you know, how science just can be real amoral. Yeah. As good as it can be, I mean, there's times when science has been pretty unethical. No, definitely. I mean, with the experiments that were done on Akira and the other children, you know, there's one part of the movie that's actually really interesting to me. It's when Kay is talking to Kaneda about, you know, what Akira is. Of course, later on, I guess we find out Akira was just, you know, one of the the children. But we get this idea of, you know, she, she positions the question, if an amoeba had the power of a human, you know, what would an amoeba do? Well, an amoeba wouldn't do what a human does for the sake of how a human does it, but uh, an amoeba would seek to do what an amoeba does, create and or uh, consume and destroy, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's almost kind of like a virus in a way. So take that to the next level. If a human had the powers of a god, because an amoeba would see a human as a god, right? What would a human do? Well, a human would do exactly what Tetsuo does. Yeah, he just takes that power and just runs with it, literally. Yeah, and, and that's why it takes control of him. Um, because he's, well, he's still young. He's not a child in the sense of Akira or the other children. Yeah, but he's a very marginalized character at first. I mean, yeah. he's always under the shadow of Kaneda. Like, his bike isn't nearly as good as Kaneda's. I mean, and he even kind of has a lower ranking in the pecking order of the gang to a degree. 
Right. And he's been tainted by society. And, and I think that that's a major theme here. I mean, of course, it's hard to say. This was adapted from a six-volume manga. And apparently only the first part of the first volume and the last part of the final volume are what actually makes it in here with a truncated version of everything in between. So, yeah. you know, like I said, it's a very blink and you'll miss it. But there's just so much to unpack. But what's interesting is how the, you know, most of the story is, is told through the lens of Kaneda, the protagonist, and Tetsuo, the antagonist, but also deuteragonist. Yeah. So you've kind of got this shifting perspective between the two. Yeah, honestly, in many ways, it's kind of difficult to pin down whose viewpoint we're really supposed to take here. Like, whose perspective is this movie really coming from? Well, I think Kaneda is, you know, the protagonist of the story, but there's large portions of the story that are told through Tetsuo's perspective. And we yeah. even get to see inside of his mind. And, you know, if, if anyone in this uh, in this movie was going to become a, a character in a crossover anime video game, it would be Tetsuo, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he is just rife for, like, like any type of fighting game crossover, like, with anime characters. Think of how badass that would be. But wouldn't he be a little overpowered, though? I mean, Goku. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> But yeah, I like the setting of Neo Tokyo, which takes place in 2019. It's interesting, you know, being that we're now in 2020. And and he, here's an interesting tidbit: in in this movie, the uh, Olympics were supposed to take place in Tokyo in 2020, and up till COVID 19 hit, that was actually when Tokyo was supposed to host the Summer Olympics this year. Yeah. So it's like, holy fuck, dude, is Akira about to happen? <laughs> Just, just it was delayed by a couple of years or Blade Runner, Blade or, Runner, total Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner is another movie that actually took place in 2019. Even Back to the Future Two, but I think we're five years too late. Yeah, we yeah. are. Yeah, we, we've already uh, gone over that date. We're living in the future, and it isn't anything like was these it stories said it would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm pissed about it. God damn it, Hollywood! Cars not even flying yet, dude. What the fuck? But honestly, this movie, Akira, I think that it is painfully relevant nowadays mm. mainly for the society that it actually shows here this yeah. is a dystopia that has risen from the ashes of another massive catastrophe and i mean what does that sound like dude this sounds like our society in the post 9-11 era yeah it does and you know this movie this movie was made in 1988 so that original destructive event in you know tokyo that explosion also you know occurs in 1988 so it's kind of like the film is like what if this shit happened now? What would this be like in the future in 2019? <laughs> yeah. And of course, you can't discount the the effect that the atomic bombings in uh, Japan that ended World War II. I mean, what effect that has had on stories such as this. Well, exactly. This movie definitely was influenced by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's no doubt about that. And just kind of the, the cataclysm that it, you know effects on society beyond the initial you know disaster kind of <laughs> kind of like the ending to the watchman movie remember that oh yeah remember that yeah 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 where uh, all the atomic bombs are going off and yeah. they make out and everything and, and that, they blame it on that one dude dr manhattan don right? manhattan yeah dr right. manhattan like he caused it like he did the and then the russians stopped attacking or whatever or yeah all, all of a sudden everybody's at peace because it took that you know wow <laughs> Yeah, no, it's crazy. We've got multiple characters that are not necessarily the central folks of the story, more so just their place in this world. But we've got Shotaro Kaneda, 
who was uh, voiced by Mito Iwata, Jimmy Flinders, or in our version, Johnny Young Bosch, voice of Ichigo Kurosaki from Bleach. It's so many anime, honestly. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a legend in his own right. <laughs> and also, Wendy Lee is in this movie as well. That is Miss Faye Valentine herself. And also, I think she was in Bleach. Uh, I'm trying to remember who she was. Was she in Bleach? I don't know. Um, but Canada is the leader of the Bosuzoku or biker gang, and obviously our main protagonist. Um, he's actually kind of the main symbol of defiance against traditional forms of authority. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting given his color scheme as well. It's very red. It like, is, right? Now, I mean, remember, like, back in Perfect Blue, that had different connotations. That was more like a a portent to what Mima was about to go through. But, yeah, here the red can be seen as basically a color defiance. Like, hell, even in a revolutionary spirit. It, it's meant to symbolize revolution. I mean, he's kind of a rebel, right, Robert? <laughs> they, yeah. they can't see you nodding, Robert. No, yeah, you, you, you would know a thing or two about being a rebel, right? Yeah, it kind of just made that way, you know. Yeah, you know, got you got to get fast cars and guns cars. and and women and just go across Everything. the Everything the apocalypse. And he's a Everything. little arrogant, you know, in a sense. But he's also got a kind of a golden heart. I mean, he he looks after his friend and you know feels a sense of loyalty towards his other gang members. Yeah, but it's kind of sad how Tetsuo kind of turns around and just doesn't really return, or he doesn't really reciprocate that. You know? No, uh, and, and you know, Tetsuo played by or voiced by Nozomo Sasaki, Stanley Gurr Jr., and, and Joshua Seth, kind of his childhood friend, and also you know a character who acquires these these telekinetic powers, which thematically represents the destructive potential of power, right? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it also shows uh, his juxtaposition to Kaneda in a more authoritarian sense. I mean, he is the one who is subjugated there. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, he's the one that feels the effect of society, and he's the one that suffers the most. It was, I'm not sure if it was real clear, he was one of the, you know, children that were experimented on, and, and this was just more of kind of an awakening of his latent powers, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that initially he really didn't score that high, but uh, it, whenever they were testing him and everything, as far as his psychic abilities, but actually encountering one of the children like at the beginning of the movie that does kind of awaken these powers that he has and and, and they're just like whoa this is off the scale here it's like this right. is almost like akira that's what they mention is that you know his pattern is you know similar to akira's except what the inverse right or the opposite in in a way i think what it is is that akira was more of the creative force and tetsuo is the destructive force and that's just them kind of colliding a little bit but then you know, Akira did destroy Tokyo, but in doing so, created Neo Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, it, it it kind of constituted a rebirth. So, I mean, that that's what uh, Akira is. He's rebirth, more or less, creation and rebirth. And Tetsuo is just destruction and chaos. That, that's a solid way of looking at it. Yeah, you know, we've also got other characters like K. And K like is K is Lee. more yeah K is more or less a mouthpiece for the children though, and she becomes a central part of the final battle against Akira and uh, and Tetsuo. Yeah, she does. And she's uh, an integral character early on. I mean, she only becomes a part of all of this because Kaneda basically sticks up for her. But then she's a member of the Resistance. Yep. 
So, I mean, it, it's an interesting dynamic. And she's obviously serves as kind of his love interest throughout the story. But there's nothing explicit about it. I mean, obviously, he's after her. But it's yeah. not like it's directly acknowledged later. But there's kind of that that sense. Yeah, more or less. But, I mean, it's not like we ever see it really consummated in any way. No. I mean, they just kind of become closer due to the, their actual shared experience. Right, right. Kind of was kind of a dick to her early on. He pulled that, like, nice guy routine. Like, Oh, totally, yeah. He, he really did kind of go nearly incel on her right? a little bit. <laughs> like, I saved you, therefore you owe me this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a transactional approach to that type of relationship. Yeah. I can I can see how that would be totally. I was looking up to see about. Oh, okay. So Wendy Lee was uh, Yoruichi. Yep, that's a Yoruichi as well. Yeah. Also, uh, Tatsuki Arasawa and Ururu. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, and others apparently, but yeah, I know I remember all all the three of those characters. Wendy Lee. I, I didn't really watch the dub of Bleach though. I will more watch the Japanese version. Okay. See, I mean that that's how I know about all these. Uh, about all these English voice actors is because I mostly watch dubbed anime. So some anime is better dubbed. I mean, this one is, is is a good dub. I don't have any issues with it. There are some dubs I can't stand. Uh, Naruto is is painful, but over time you kind of get used to it. It's okay. But there's just mo most of them are pretty bad. The only the only really good ones I think for me is like Full Metal, Death Note. Death Note's pretty good. Hey, don't forget Shin Chan. Shin Chan, <laughs> Shin -chan has a badass dub. Honestly. Like they they redubbed it to be an adult oriented uh, animated comedy show. I I don't know. I've warmed up to dub. I guess I used to be one of those more like purists. Like oh, the Japanese version is the best. But it's only because it doesn't sound as cringy. But then when you realize that, you know, the Japanese voice acting actually is just as cringy. We just don't notice it because it's not in our natural language. And and then you just sort of em embrace it. You're like this is this is part of anime. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, they they're have exaggerated personalities. And, and if you try to put, this is why so many anime live action adaptations don't pan out, is because when you try to put that same level of personality into live action, it just doesn't translate well. Yeah, I mean, you see it over and over again, especially with something like, I mean, Speed Racer, Dragon Ball Z. And they've been trying to make a live action version of this movie for the longest time. But yeah. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna bring that up later, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That there there actually has been a live action adaptation in the works here. But you know, we've also got characters like Colonel Shikishima, the military leader of Neo Tokyo. Yeah, he's very much a soldier's soldier. And and he actually, even though he doesn't particularly care for the way that the city is gone, he still feels duty bound to actually try to do something to stave off this coming sort of apocalypse that's about to happen. Yeah, there's not a lot of black and white here. I mean, a lot, most of the characters are kind of just embroiled in this conflict, and they are who they are. They're, they're a part of this for better or for worse. And, and it's not like anyone's completely self-serving or completely evil, and it's not like anyone's completely good-hearted, pure. You know what I mean? There's Everyone's kind of, you know, shades of gray in between, with, with Kaneda and Tetsuo being more extreme examples than the rest. But yeah, even so, I mean... Tetsuo's not fully evil. That much is explored. He's a sympathetic character. And Kaneda's not, you know, a saint. He's a cocky, arrogant guy that is a gang leader and, you know, stirs up violence. And he, But he still has a heart of gold, and he still actually tries to help Tetsuo and help Kei, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very much archetypes that are also products of their own society. Yeah. You've also got Dr. Onishi, the head scientist, Rusaki, who's... 
Kay's brother. That's Kay's brother, really? Well, it's not directly stated, but I think it's also I read somewhere that it's maybe this is explored in the manga, but he claims to be her brother, but maybe actually isn't. Oh, okay. But okay. They don't really state it in the film, but he he has some kind of relationship with her, you know, the way that he talks to her. Yeah. I almost kind of thought he was like her father or something, but then I realized that can't be right. Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting character though. That that that's the uh, other rebel leader that Kay interacts with, right? Yeah, Ryu. Ryu. Yeah, he actually looks a lot like the general, right? He does, right? They're kind of like they look similar. And we we've got other characters, of course, too. We've got the Epser children, the uh, Kyoko, Takashi, and Masaru. Uh, numbers 25, 26, and 27. Yeah, those are really, really interesting characters. I mean, they have a very interesting look to them. It's almost ghost-like, kind of. Yeah, they're like children, but they're like blue and shriveled, right, Robert? Like Tales from the Crypt or something? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Old I, ladies from SpongeBob? I don't know. I, I like how whenever they try to attack Tetsuo... They literally just get a mass of toys together and create these ginormous, like, stuffed animal creatures. And it, it's really intense the first time you see them. Like, the teddy bear starts leaking a bunch of milk all over the place. <laughs> it's like, that's an interesting bit of symbolism there. I wonder what the, all that milk meant. Teddy milk. Teddy milk. <laughs> yeah, but... We're going back to Visitor Q. Oh, no. Oh, oh wow. no. Wow. I, I think that's the episode that broke Dakota. I think I think I think we broke the coda after that. I think we did. <laughs> the martyrs didn't do it, but Visitor Q did. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't I don't get it. He, he could watch martyrs, but he couldn't watch Visitor Q. He warped his fragile little mind. Yeah, we did. Warped <laughs> it big time. Yeah, though there's a lot of interesting characters here. I like Kaori, Tetsuo's love interest. Some other members of the game like Yamagata and Kai. That are you know members of Kanada's biker gang, and then of course uh, Mr. Nezu, the the leader of the resistance and the kind of corrupt parliament member. Oh yeah, he pretty much just gets all of his banknotes together and tries to stuff it into a uh, into a suitcase near the end, and he meets an untimely fate. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Pictures presents a state-of-the-art adventure, Akira. That, a fate that's kind of fitting for him, though. 
and there's kind of like there's no good force here, right? You've got the the resistance, but they're not. You know, normally would would be like your good guys, but they're not completely good. You've got the military, and obviously they're not good. <laughs> uh, and you've even got like you know your rival biker gangs that are just kind of in the middle. And sounds just like now, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> It's like who's right and who's wrong and and yeah. okay I believe in this but you know what's going on with this and uh, yeah everything's just fucking crazy. Road warriors, dude. <laughs> Road warriors. <laughs> but yeah, no, and there's definitely a lot of um I think rioting going on in this storyline. Lots of rioting. Yeah. And also there's this weird religious cult that kind of starts to gain prominence and near the end you see them a little bit and they're they're completely just waylaid whenever they try to cross that bridge and they're they're yeah. following tetsuo I, I like that elvis looking motherfucker <laughs> oh he's hilarious yeah the the main cult leader <laughs> I, just every time that guy comes on on screen i can't take him seriously he's just like <laughs> I, I, honestly i don't think you're supposed to i mean he reminds me of that of that guy in, in emperor's new grove <laughs> Emperor, emperor's new Cusco! groove you mean emperor's new groove that's what i said new groove you said grove you know grove. what I know what I said. This <laughs> motherfucker. No. Emperor's new groove. You threw off my groove. <laughs> I don't know. That guy just, just <laughs> the first time I watched this, the yeah, second he, time he, I watched this. He does have a, a Cusco vibe to him. I, I hope he has, not a Cusco vibe, but the the disco guy that sings oh, Cusco's theme okay. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, lo I love that dude, and I, I hope that he's a more prominent character in the manga, honestly. It would be interesting to see, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I know you've just got all of these kind of factions going on and, and just beating in the middle, and, and there's no clear sense of who's right or wrong, just, you know, mainly the conflict between these two boys. That's really what it kind of boils down to, and, and as I alluded to earlier, you know, the whole conflict versus, you know, creation thing, you know. Yeah, there's or a whatever. lot of interesting themes here, and I love that the way that they're explored, and I love that the way that they're executed. I mean, we've got, obviously, the graphic depiction of violence that doesn't seem to be as explicit in most anime nowadays. Oh, sometimes if you look hard enough, you'll find something pretty fucked up. Honestly. Yeah, no, no, I mean, no joke. There are some that are, that are, that are still ongoing, yeah, but, but like, not the mainstream things. But it, it's just not like this original golden age of anime wave that came out. I mean, we had stuff like, you know, Geno Cyber or something fucked up like Barefoot Gen or... Like, I, I referred to Orotsuka Doji earlier. Yeah. That's pretty much where the whole, you know, tentacle thing starts. It was like uh, Berserk, right? Berserk, that's another really crazy... Fist of the North Star. Yeah. Oh, the way that Berserk ends. Holy shit. What's the one about the, the boxer? Uh, Oh, shit. And, and his dad, like, beats him up. No, that's Baki the Grappler. Baki the Grappler. Yeah. Baki the Grappler. Yes. That shit was insane. <laughs> I originally saw that as a as an OVA, but I mean, I haven't really seen the actual series. I think I watched. I don't know if it, I think it was the OVA. Yeah, yeah. In the OVA, what was supposed to be his dad, what what, what would be the his dad character in the series? It was just a random fighter that he was fighting underground. But oh no no no, he was his dad. Maybe I was watching the series, but it was like bits and pieces of it. Yeah, yeah. But I remember Baki the Grappler. That was insane. But yeah, no, I love the the depiction of violence. It's not like what's the word? It's not ex exploitative necessarily. It's no, not it's, done it's not exploitative. No, it, no, it's just it's just there. It's realistic, you know. It, it, it does add a lot to the realism of the animation as well. I mean, yeah, no, for sure. I mean that that's really the takeaway here. With I mean, what did you think about the cinematography, Robert? Yeah, it was a lot like Tron, really. And what was it? Speed Racer, kind of like 
Batman animated series. I don't know. Well, okay. I mean, I but know. what about the cinematography? I mean, did you, did you notice how with all oh, of with the, the lights? All dude, the, that must have taken like years to do that. Yeah. And also the detail in the backgrounds. Yeah. You know, like where everything. Strobing it with those neons almost like and, light. And lighting. how all the buildings were kind of panning in different planes. Kind At of. least over several lappings of drawings, like thousands probably. Like, oh my God. I mean, j just on the backgrounds alone. By the thousands. Yeah. Like, I mean, those must have been a bitch to really animate, just all those backgrounds going through the city and everything. Well, interesting, there actually was a bit of CGI used here. Oh, um, awesome. A, a lot of the, the falling objects, the parallax effects on backgrounds, and the lighting and lens flares is actually computer-generated. Um, also, that pattern indicator for Akira and yeah, that's Tetsuo. Yeah, that's very obviously a computer effect. That was that was the more prominent one, but the rest of them kind of just slipped by unnoticed. But it, because the animation overall is just completely super fluid, yeah, it's it's a true feat for the genre for its time, and honestly, just in animation in general, this this movie even beats some of the the best animation that's out today. Yeah, even and so you know what CGI is used there is not gratuitous at all. It just kind of. Uh, it enhances the flavor. Well, the interesting thing is, is that nowadays a lot of anime is kind of a real blend of more 2D models and 3D animation. Yeah. That's, so that's something that's actually become a lot more prominent in the industry since then. But I'm like, man, why don't we see this kind of animation as much anymore? I don't know, man. I, I wish we could get something similar to this. It, it's like it's it's mesmerizing. I love, you know, just the, the blurs and the, you know, and a lot of it you may... It, it, this is better than some of the most like top tier moments in anime. Like you'll know every once in a while you'll be sometimes you'll have in a long running series like Naruto you'll have like some some fight scenes that are crappy or, or some scenes overall. But then you've got like your major fights are usually have like fantastic animation. Like they really up the ante. This kind of puts all of those high moments to shame. I think. It really does. I and, mean, and that's coming from someone who's a huge fan of Naruto, and you know, everything except for I think the pain fight was 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 pretty good. The, the pain fight is just one of those painful things that was just it was just so bad it became a meme. You've seen that shit, right? Yeah, I've I've seen it. <laughs> and and I, I'd like to go ahead and make another comparison here. I really think that Cowboy Bebop animation wise is kind of close to this a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I see I what mean, you mean. Yeah, I mean, because there's a little bit of a realism that's shown in that anime as well, especially the actual setting. You know, I mean, it's it's actually a very realistic depiction of what where we could be at that point in space travel in technology. You know, yeah, I guess that's more of a positive spin on technology and there was this is more of kind of one of those i would i wouldn't say it's a positive spin because there, there's a lot of shit that had happened in cowboy bebop where technology kind of failed like especially with those uh wormhole gates and everything that that's pretty much what happened to the earth why the earth is uninhabitable in that series okay i need to watch yeah. more cowboy bebop i only started I have, it i have the full series man like i mean you should you should really fucking watch that yeah no it was interesting i've seen i, I watched the start of it i just didn't get very far yeah but I, I was i was impressed by what i did see but you know we have awkward to thank for that certainly i mean we wouldn't have anime in the west i mean at the time i mean a animated movies or animated shows were, were for children they were cartoons you had disney and that was pretty much it well i mean if you go back to the actual early beginnings of animation as an art form 
Usually, a lot of that shit was not shown to kids. It was shown in movie theaters in between features. Okay, yeah. Or before features. Akira was originally just screened in theaters, and it was, it was a culture shock for, for Americans to witness. And it, it became so popular and gained you know, kind of an international cult following that eventually it did see a VHS release. And Akira has been on the Criterion Collection before a few times, on Laserdisc and on VHS, I believe. I would love for them to release a new updated transfer. Like, that, would that would be nice. That would be amazing. But, I mean, there's just, yeah, there's so much beautiful detail to this. I mean, obviously, uh, or I, I don't know, I guess I won't say obviously, but, you know, there's pre-scored dialogue used here. So, you know, the dialogue is, is written in advance or, or recorded in advance, and then the characters' mouths are fit to match. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, when you're watching the dub, is a little harder to notice, but... Well, they have ways of actually localizing that and also fitting the mouth flap with what they're saying and everything. Yeah. So it's a little more sophisticated nowadays, but this is fluid enough that you don't really notice any flaws with how everything is syncing up. No, know? I watched the dub and it I didn't didn't really take me out of the immersion. I like that the the budget here in this film was actually what really allowed us to see a fully realized futuristic Tokyo, one of the first films to really do so. I mean, you know, like like we mentioned in Perfect Blue, we had that trope of, you know, the futuristic Tokyo, but this was one of the first films to fully do it and, and display it in a way that no live action movie had been able to do before. Yeah. I mean, especially when it comes to a lot of the action set pieces. I mean, yeah. like, like whenever you get to uh, Akira's actual resting place, when Tetsuo finally makes it there. And what he does whenever he uncovers that, he pretty much lifts the entire facility out from underground and yeah. fucking just tears it to fucking pieces just to get at Akira. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, poor city has just gone through so much destruction. And apparently it happens again and again in the manga, from what I've heard. Holy shit, so there's like multiple apocalypses. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. I mean, this is both a post-apocalyptic and also apocalyptic and, and even pre pre-apocalyptic it's like <laughs> wow yeah no it's insane you know so much so i mean that this this movie like i said has you know garnered kind of an international cult following i uh, ha currently has a 90 percent on rotten tomatoes yeah and also roger and ebert really loved this movie they they, yeah. they fully recognized the step forward in you know, quality of animation that this brought and storytelling and everything. They, they they actually saw what was happening here. Yeah, I mean, before Akira, no one could have really foretold what anime could mean to the West or what it could be as a medium. I mean, what do you think, Robert, as someone who hasn't really had as much of a background in anime? Oh, I really don't know, dude. I'm kind of falling asleep right now. Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe you shouldn't get drunk before we do this. Maybe it shouldn't be three in the fucking morning. I got to work at that's nine. A, that's a good point. There you go. That is a good point. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll take the blame for that. I came super late. <laughs> and I was working Christ. on this itinerary. Jesus Christ. But I mean, I mean, this and Perfect Blue were kind of an awakening for you, right? I mean, to kind of see, I mean, did you expect that you would see this in animated form? This sort of thing? No, I really didn't, actually. It took me by surprise. Yeah, more than anything. Well, th th that's kind of why we did this whole two-part anime thing here, was to kind of broaden our horizons and also kind of broaden the podcast's horizons, so. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and what better than 
you know, Akira, which had an impact on anime as a whole, especially, you know, the way we perceived it in the West, still widely regarded as one of the greatest animated and sci-fi films ever made. I would say it's one of the greatest movies ever made, period. Yeah. And, and it is in the 1001 Movies You Need to See Before You Die book, which is very popular. Badass. It, it's in that collection. I mean, it's a landmark in, in Japanese animation. It's pivotal to not just Japanese cyberpunk genre, but the cyberpunk genre as a whole, uh, and paved the way for the growth of anime and Japanese pop culture in the Western world. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just something that a lot of casual audiences are actually somewhat aware of. Or I guess I should say anyone who knows any anime is aware of Akira. We may come from different generations. We may have different tastes. But if, if you have any kind of a background in anime you've heard of or probably have seen Akira. Yeah, I mean, you've probably even seen some of the actual, so some of the action scenes in this, you know, lifted for other works as well. You know, it's yeah. like what Robert brought up with, like, you know, Batman the Animated Series. I mean, there, there's a lot of instances where that was influenced by that, so... You can tell. You can tell yeah. not just in, in Japanese animation, but animation overall. And let's not forget South Park, <laughs> Trapper Keeper. <laughs> <laughs> let's but, not forget that. That was a total send-up of Akira. The, you know, Akira was so critically successful and so revered that, you know, since 2002, there's been several failed attempts at a live-action film adaptation. Man, I wish that they would already get that made, man. Like, I've heard Taika Waititi was uh, last attached to it, but I don't know how if that's uh, a thing anymore. Yeah. I remember DiCaprio was kind of developing it back in the day. DiCaprio, huh? Yeah, DiCaprio had some kind of involvement, I believe. Huh. I mean, I, and I think Spielberg also had his hand in it somewhere along the line, so... Yeah, we touched on it earlier, but yeah, I mean, the, the live-action film has gone through at least five different directors and ten writers. God damn it. Most recently, Taika Waititi. Um, currently, it's on indefinite hold because Whoa. of his part with for Thor Love and Thunder. Yeah. I don't know. I think that eventually it'll be made. I think eventually, and I hope Waititi does it because uh, he's brilliant, and I, I, I'd love to see you know where he could take this, but I don't know. Do, do, do you think that maybe we should actually have like a Japanese director behind it? It. It would definitely help to have a Japanese director. I would say get Takashi Miike on that because he <laughs> yes. knows how to do anime and manga adaptations. He knows how to do that. He, he would be perfect for it, I think. Or, uh, you know, I'd like to see uh, Hideo Kojima is apparently like a huge film fanatic. Obviously, he's a game developer, but yeah. um, he actually mentions Akira. I think he was saying that Death Stranding was going to come out in the year that Akira came out. Oh, or wow. Akira takes place. I'm sorry. Yeah. In which it, I believe it did. It did come out right at the end of 2019. Um, wow, that that that's actually really really cool. Shout out to Collateral Gaming. I mean, we did an episode on Death Stranding, and that was really really fun. Yeah, actually, there have been a few video game adaptations of Akira. Yeah, there was a canceled uh, game that was coming out on some of the 8-bit and 16-bit uh, consoles back in the day. Yeah, and also there was an adventure game that came out. It's a Japanese exclusive on yeah. the Famicom. And, and, and there was also a Game Boy game that was uh, planned. It was, it was planned. I mean, there was a prototype made. Somebody really? does have a prototype. L look it up on YouTube. I'd, I'd like to see that. And, uh, and I actually have a ROM of the Japanese Akira Nintendo game. Oh, hell so, yeah. Yeah. That, that's awesome. That The Famicom game, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the original Famicom game. Yeah, but I have that. There's also a game on the Amiga, an Amiga CD32, and there's a pinball simulator called Akira Psycho Ball on the PS2. What? Yeah, no, no oh shit. Oh, God. It, it was, like, coincided with, like, the re DVD release. Almost sounds like shovelware to me. <laughs> Uh, 
All right. The story is you and your friends went out at night on your bikes to visit your dying mother, and then another bunch of other biker hooligans called the clowns attacked you. They hurt your friend, you lost your temper, and that's why eight of these clowns, your attackers, are all now in the hospital. And that is the truth. Ooh, she's sure hot. Mm -hmm. This oh. is confidential. And how's your mother doing? Huh? <clears throat> Fortunately, the worst is over. She cleared the hump. She cleared the hump, huh? What next, a triathlon? Uh -huh. <laughs> ah, these bozos couldn't have anything to do with it. That goes without saying. Wait out on that bench. Do you understand? All right, send in the next five. So, the army's working with the police. To hunt down anti-government groups, or so it seems. Yeah, that's uh. it. And you kids are free to leave. We've contacted your school. See your principal Why, you in the morning. Son of a bitch. Hey, hold on a second, old man. <laughs> old man? There was someone else with us, you know. What was that? Uh, will you pardon me, please? Huh? Hey, what are you doing? Uh, it's this one right here. Can't leave my friend. <sighs> Don't ever call me old man, you little punk. That's my foot! You listen here, kid. I'm only 25 years old. I'm not even married yet. So watch your mouth. Get out of here and take your friend with you. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, what do you guys think? What are your uh, final thoughts on Akira, Robert? Crazy as fuck. Probably need to see it one more time. Just like anything else you guys show me. Yeah, wa watch it at least 30 more times, Robert. Like you I, still, need I still don't get it. <laughs> yeah. It's just a transcendental movie. I mean, I really, really have always loved this movie ever since I first saw it. And, you know, I mean, my brother and I, we used to watch it all the time. And, oh, man, it's like I was glad to find this on DVD. And I was glad to actually watch it again. I mean, it's a real treat, a visual treat. I mean, the story is still tight to this day. Yeah. I mean... The animation impresses every way you look at it. And, I mean, it still just had a huge cultural impact that is always going to be felt, honestly. Th th this is an anime that is for every generation of anime fan. Every I, generation. I would agree with that. Yeah, even just starting in the anime world, before I actually watched the film, I mean, I was aware of it. You know, it's responsible for some of the anime that we grew up with like Dragon Ball which uh, you know in turn was responsible for anime that I grew up with you know like Naruto and so it's something that you know if it's not the father of of, of something that you love it's the grandfather of something that you love uh, everything ties back to Akira in a way and so as an anime fan it's almost kind of our uh, our mecca you know at some point you gotta watch Akira yeah 
Yeah, you have to. You have to watch that, Ghost in the Shell, yeah. and you know, Cowboy Bebop, pretty much. Yeah, but Akira I, you know, remains one of the most, not just influential anime films, but films of all time. I think it's it's definitely, you know, deserves its place in, in Hall of Fame. I think any moviegoer, whether you like anime or not, you should see this film. It's got, you know, so much imagery and so much symbolism and so much just depth to it. And it requires, like you said, maybe six or seven watches to fully understand. But even so, you'll have a blast getting through it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyway... I guess we'll sort of wrap it up here. Yeah, it's about that time, I would say. <laughs> what's uh, what's going on next time with Collateral Cinema? With Collateral Cinema, we are going to take a look at another classic video game movie. And, you know, it's funny. We did Sonic the Hedgehog earlier this season. And now we're doing the Super Mario Brothers movie. Super Mario Brothers. And I'm hoping that I could get my brother on that episode. He was supposed to be on this one, but he was working late, and we, we just couldn't uh, get him in time. But, yeah, it's going to be an interesting movie. I mean, I like the Super Mario Brothers movie, and I think that people will enjoy our take on it. I think so as well. I think we'll, we'll kind of just we'll just we'll just make that a collaboration with Collateral Gaming. We, we got it. It's, yeah. It's yeah. collab. So, as well. yeah, I'm super stoked about Super Mario Brothers. I, speaking of collateral gaming, we're coming out soon with our episode on Spyro Reignited Trilogy. Um, that should be out, what, I think, I think we're recording it next week. So, yeah, it'll be out a week after the release of this. And we're, we're heading towards kind of our season finale as well. So if you listen to Collateral Cinema and you love video games as well, please check out Collateral Gaming. I'm on Collateral Gaming. Dakota's on Collateral Gaming when I can when I can get them. And our co-hosts Megan and Alan are on there as well. And we're super excited to be running two podcasts side by side. It's it's what I spend the majority of my personal life thinking about <laughs> and doing. You know when I have free time. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I feel you there. Also, after Super Mario Brothers, we're gonna go ahead and have our season finale. Yep, and we're doing Best Friends, starring Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero. Yeah, I'm actually super excited about that, right, Robert? Are you excited? Oh, yeah. Still need to watch Volume 1 and 2, right? Yeah, that's going to be awesome, and I believe victims and villains are going to join us for that one. So. Nice. Yep. Best Friends is going to be very near and dear to our hearts as huge Tommy Wiseau, The Room fans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. We, we still need to get that commentary out on The Disaster Artist. Yeah, uh, I, I know. We're, we're going to probably get to it. I mean, I know this is probably the first season we haven't really done commentaries, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get them done. We'll get around to it. But, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Anything else to add, Bo? Um, other than where you can find Collateral Cinema, like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, Apple Podcasts, Chill Lover Radio, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And wherever you listen to that, you can listen to Collateral Gaming as well. Uh, reach out to us on social media. You can find Collateral Cinema on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We, we're pretty active with our social media accounts, in particular Twitter. And I'm kind of, you know, managing the Instagram right now and try to yeah. update it. You can follow us on our personal profiles as well if you find them. Hey, if you have any feedback for us, let us know. Leave, make sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And, and DM us. Let us know what you think about the show. And, you know, if you have any ideas, if you have any movies that you want us to get into, if you're an indie film director and you want us to or involved in the film in any way and you, you want us to review your movie, I mean, hit us up. We love to do that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. Especially on the director's cut. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. 
which there will be a new episode of that soon. We haven't picked a topic, but it'll be coming out. Still need to decide yeah. where we're going with this. I mean, y'all did a Friday the 13th franchise review recently, right? With we director's just, cut. Yeah, yeah, we just finished up on part two director's yeah, cut. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, actually. It was the greatest thing that ever happened. <laughs> hey, if you like these two voices minus mine, you can go listen to director's cut. Um, I'm listening to it, actually, every episode. So I can say objectively, as, as a listener, it's, it's good stuff. It's good shit. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. But um, yeah, I guess that's it, guys. That being said, I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Robert Ortegon. And I'm Ashley Chancellor. And we are out, ladies and gentlemen. Check us out on the Director's Cut. Later. Federal Cinema out. Out. Boop. Cinema is an L Company production. All music and movie clips are owned by the respective creators and are used for educational purposes only. Please don't sue us. We're poor.